When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste, motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Man on a Chicken Wire. And today's theme is Canada. Before we get started with the episode, thank you so, so much to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the podcast. It makes a massive difference to us and it's only a few seconds to you. So what's not to like? And while you're at it, why not hit subscribe so that you never miss another episode? Right, back to Canada. Oral sex was legalised in Canada in 1969. I think we might as well leave the Canada facts right there. That is hard to top. Actually, this fact's pretty nice too. Wild pigs in Canada will burrow themselves under the snow to stay warm in the freezing temperatures. These icy little shelters are called pigloos. And while we're on cute, a theatre in Ontario, Canada, put on a production of Billy Elliot specifically so service dogs in training could practice sitting quietly through a performance. Oh, Jeff would never do that. I was um, deep in thought of admin, of just the, you know, the admin of being ready. That's today's guest, Bobby Mayer. In 1816, the United States built a fort to protect itself from invasion by Canada. Trouble was, due to a surveying error, it was actually built in Canada. It was later known as Fort Blunder. The Haskell Free Library and Opera House is on the US-Canadian border. If you go and see a show, the performers will be in Canada, while most of the audience will be sitting in the US. Newfoundland is home to the small town of Dildo, and a couple of years ago, a porn website offered to run free advertising to support tourism to the town. How generous of them. And finally, doctors in Canada can actually prescribe a visit to a national park. And I, I put myself in front of this blind, and yeah, I, I the lighting. Know what's happening. Are you in prison? No, the lighting isn't perfect. Bobby Mayer is a Canadian stand up comedian based in London. He has appeared, among other things, on The Hour, Russell Howard's Good News, Virtually Famous, Nevermind the Buzzcocks, and 8 Out of 10 Cats. He was the host of the reality horror show Killer Camp on ITV2, as well as starring in the reality sitcom Bobby and Harriet Get Married. He has supported Jerry Sadovitz, Doug Stanhope, and Bill Burr on tour, and he's a third cousin of Canadian pop star Justin Bieber, although they've never met. A fact Bobby loves to mention, not least in his hit solo show, Obviously Adopted. Bobby and I talked about parenting, babies, adoption, borderline personality disorder, addiction, ADHD, pornography, being attacked on stage, A-listers backstage, comedy, mental health, and savants. But I started by asking him if he would class himself as ginger. I was very blonde until I was 18, and then my hair changed to red, and then it changed back to something in between. So I don't, I, I, I don't consider myself a part of that club where people like talk about it a lot and it, it, it's a part of their character because of what people have said to them but I, that's never happened to me really so i i don't know what color is my hair i'm gonna go strawberry blonde i think your beard is slightly redder but that's par for the course for a beard isn't it I, yeah my son has brown hair but a very red beard that's nice yeah it's nice it's a very strong look um, is it what, what sort of colouring is your daughter? Does she have? Has she, has she gone more the kind similar of to me? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You have eyebrows though, I think. I'm just looking. Yeah, you do. I think so. Yeah. And eyelashes. 
That's well, yeah. I mean, who doesn't? Well, some people. My brother's eyelashes and eyebrows are so blonde; it looks like he doesn't have them. Oh, okay. No offense, yeah. Michael, if you're listening, he won't be listening. Does he listen ever? I don't think so. My parents are avid listeners. It's a horrifying feeling. This the second you find out your family is listening to your podcast, it makes you want to crawl inside of yourself. There you go, There's mom and nothing... dad. Bobby said it. I haven't. I remember to. when my dad told me he was listening, and I was like, "Who? Why is this happening? You're mm-hmm. 77. I don't need. I don't need. I I I talk. I, and then I'm like, "What have I? I? It's not like I've been nice." What have you said? What are the things I don't know. you most I, would? What would you most like your dad not to have heard? Probably that just that I find it all a bit uncomfortable. That that's probably it. It's just all a bit uncomfortable. I don't know how to be, but I, I don't need him to know that. He can die not knowing. He can die thinking that I find it really comfortable. Do you reckon he would think that, being as he is your dad? Well, I, he's my adopted dad. We're not that similar. He's a nice, kind enough man, but I I don't think he thinks about it really some people and i say this with kindness are like kind of say what you see people my dad is a say what you see guy so what sort of thing would he say if you hadn't seen him for a while you're obviously canadian you go back home what would he say it's a bit bit cold okay he'd go for the weather that's it he'd go for the weather he'd go for a a car that drove by just to say what you see guy Uh and it seems like a better life because I'm like stuck in my mind and constantly trying to pull myself out of like just the racing thoughts in my head. And it seems a lot better to just be like, oh, that, that's happening. Do you think, yeah, I sometimes think that, and I, I'm not saying it like I'm some superior over analytical being, but that kind of, it's almost a luxury to be able to just go on and on in our heads about stuff that is so irrelevant. And you know, some people don't have, a, I think 50% of people don't have an internal monologue. Wow. I'd like a sort of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind option on that, where you could try not having one for a bit, see if you yeah. like it. Would you like that? Well, I don't know. I don't think I wouldn't be me. No, I wouldn't be me either. We wouldn't be us. This would be a very different podcast. My, my I think my, entirely, my entire personality is constructed from me having a very loud, angry voice in my head that's very anxious and angry and paranoid. And then trying to be outwardly friendly. And the contrast between those two is what makes me probably me. Which bit of you is the you then, do you think? I don't know. I don't think that's a knowable thing. Yeah. Because I think when I see you, you're very friendly. We gig together a bit and you're always really friendly. I feel like you're the sort of person who would say, hey, come round or let's have a coffee. And you you wouldn't be horrified if I did. If you didn't live an hour and a half away from me then that would probably happen at some point yes. where are you living then i live in south london yeah that's a lot which which bit of south london like uh like near Hearn hill okay yeah you really couldn't be further away you live near my friend julie though so she could come around to see you in my uh, stead what's she like she's really nice you'd like her kind of glaswegian says it how it is but maybe with more internal monologue going on than your adoptive dad okay so sort of cross between you and your dad she is okay. glaswegian okay She'd be a good um, person to have around for tea, wouldn't she? Yeah, I don't drink tea. What do you drink? Coca-Cola or water. Because you used to drink drink, didn't you? I have, yeah, yeah, I used to drink drink, yeah. Like drink, 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 like problem drink. Oh, yeah, well. For the podcast, if it was a big problem. Okay, okay. That's Yeah, yeah, we can, I used to, yeah, I definitely used to drink. I used to do drugs and, and not every day. But just when I did it, I was particularly bad at it. In what way? I was just, I wouldn't stop until I, not and not every time, but by the time I quit, I just wouldn't stop until I blacked out and then I'd have long blackouts, which is quite terrifying because then you wake up like the next day not knowing where you are and feeling very afraid. And yeah, so that wasn't great. And then I stopped doing that, thinking that was the problem. I thought I'm like 30. No, I would have been like 28, 29 years old. Once I quit drinking and doing drugs, I'm going to be okay. Everyone's telling you that is the problem. And then I quit drinking and doing drugs. And I went fucking insane. It turns out drinking and drugs, like even though you're self-medicating, it was really working, actually, compared 
to what was happening without that. Well, that's why people, that's why addicts are addicts. It's partly the way they're wired. I'm not saying you're an addict, but anyone. I don't think anyone's an addict now. No one's an addict now. Everyone has ADHD. The label has been replaced. (laughs) The the label is gone. No one now is an addict. And that's fine. I don't really, it's all interchangeable. It doesn't matter. But like everyone who 20 years ago would have said, I'm an addict now says, I have, I have ADHD. ADHD and I could get any of these late, like the labels are, you know, great. The labels are good. They're easy come, easy go. The label. Do you think that, there is some ADHD anonymous now then? I don't think there is. I, still I don't think it's think based so. on the addictions. Yeah. But it's, also, it's all the same. It's the exact same behaviors. It is the I, same behaviors apart from you could argue one is to anesthetize. So like the stuff you do, if you're addicted to whatever it is, if you're addicted to sex, drugs, drink, it's kind of, sure. it's numbing, it's numbing the fact you don't have a relationship with yourself. Whereas if you have ADHD, you're, you're wired in a certain way where you're not living life the same as everyone else apart from nowadays, because everyone has it. You are yes. living the same. It's not neurodivergent yes. now. It's neurotypical. Uh, uh, yeah, I read a thing. Like, and again, like I listen, I could probably get the diagnosis, and I'm not criticizing anyone who holds on to that diagnosis and it has changed their life because I know people where it has completely changed their life, and that's great. But I read a thing and it said that, well, 20% of the population may have ADHD. And I was like, well, if it's 20%, that's not really – that is just how people are. That yeah. is how we are. And we're possibly living in a way that does not, is not conducive with what makes human beings happy. <laughs> you know, like a, maybe it's a bit of, like, it's so funny how the problem always comes back to you. You know, like, oh, you don't like to stare at a screen all day? Something that no, no, no creature like in the line of millions of like years ever did that doesn't make you feel good well then there's something wrong with you and now you yeah and you you're still like obsessively doing you have to do it but it's just so um it's so funny how it's always back to you have you noticed in that because you're obviously a bit younger than me and Mm. i have definitely noticed in the whatever i've had 30 years of adulting how much worse my concentration's got with every, with the advent of everything that I like, I of am course. so much, I'm so bad now. Like to the point I was in bed going, thinking, do I have ADHD? And actually I, I it told me I didn't. So I might be the one person who doesn't, but I was thinking, cause I literally cannot, I hop from thing to thing to thing. If I don't sure. have to write a bit of my book or do a podcast, I would never sit still with a subject for an hour like this unless the subject was you and we were recording it i would find a zillion other things to do in this hour yeah wait what was the question Uh, well obviously because of my bitsy brain i've asked you seven questions but the question was do you have you noticed a difference in your time as an adult in terms of i don't really have a comparison point for myself because you always had screens i always i always had them so it would be born holding an ipad weren't you well no i don't know no because i'm 38 so i was born holding an ipad but very early on, I had television, which was like most well, of we my We did day. have television probably when I was growing up. I'm not. No, but I I don't think you necessarily probably, like I won't watch television like eight hours a day. Yeah, we only I don't had know. children's TV like at certain times of the day. So that's Yeah, yeah. We Maybe you just had better parents. Yeah. And then, but I. They're listening, so, I, so they were way better. They were perfect. And then once I was a, a, probably 11, then I had a computer and then that was that was all I was doing. Um, and what were you doing on the computer? No porn. Was it porn in those days? Yeah, 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 of course. Was it? Because you see, we I grew up without without not that there wasn't porn, but it wasn't accessible. Like it was it was it was videos that people would have, like literal physical video cassettes, or it was magazines off the top shelf in an it was sure. that was what it was. Yeah. Sure. The good well, old now... days. The days of the bush and the hard copy porn. Okay. I feel uncomfortable. Like porn, even talking about it just feels disgusting. Like porn, yeah. I think there's, I think everyone reaches an age where they realize watching porn just makes me feel disgusting. But then lots of adult men and some women, but it is still much more overwhelmingly men, are still doing it a lot. I mean, well, yeah. it wouldn't be that massive industry. No, of course. Are you going I mean, to distance after. yourself from porn now? You're like, that was 11-year-old me. I'm 30. Yeah, well, it just feels like, ugh. I don't know. I just, I, I, 
so bring it back to comedy a bit when i started comedy i was very sexual on stage and that was like my whole act was uh i would literally look at my set list and i had a breakup because every joke was either coming or death like what what would a joke of bobby mayer in those days um, have been my first joke was uh when i was 13 i heard i talked like emo phillips when i started comedy um it was like emo phillips and jimmy stewart so i said when i was 13 i heard that masturbation made hair grow on your knuckles so i spread cum around my mouth hoping for a goatee <laughs> i think it's a good yeah. it's a good joke and now you have a beard so it would be even better if you did it now I had to come on my own face quite a few times. There you yeah. go. You have your um, own. You have your own evidence to make it yeah. a visual gag as well as a yeah, nice yeah, yeah, bit of word stuff. But I take it you've retired that joke now. You don't. Yeah, it was alive for years. It was such it's a good. A, it's it, a strong joke. You well could say that. I could say that in any room, and it would. It would. If it didn't get a reaction, I was like, well, nothing will ever. Yeah, what's wrong with you people? If you don't want to come on the face joke, I'm done with you. Did Not you even a, a yeah. laugh. But if it just got silence, it would be like, well, I mean, I don't think you're engaged yeah. in what's happening. Then you could do the Larry David thing of just looking at your audience and saying, nah, not for me, and just leaving. I I respect anyone that has the ability to leave without, like if I'm angry, I will berate. I won't just leave. I've seen you berate. I've seen you decide I'm taking on the audience. It's you or me and it is not gonna be you. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I have, I do have a habit of that. One time I did a show and it was like a heckler. It was like a show where you uh, talked about times you were heckled. And I just started making a list of times people tried to attack me. And it was over 10. Re physically attack you? Physically attack me. So what are, in, the, in the top 10 of physical attacks on Bobby Mayer, what are we talking? What are the top one or two? Well, well the first one was just, I, it had nothing to do with me. I was just on stage and I had made a joke about a call center. I don't even know what the joke was. I talked about a call center. And a man dropped a glass. I thought, that's weird. And then he started walking towards the bathroom, I thought, which was right beside the stage. But he didn't go into the bathroom. He just walked on stage and started punching me in the face. When was um, this? That was like 2006. Wow. And he's just punching me in the face. And I'm like, this is weird. Why am I being punched in the face? And I probably got hit like five times in the face. And no Did blood you punch back? Um, no, because you're. he wasn't bigger than me. I think in a fight, I probably could have beat this guy in a fight. But... It was so startling, like in a fight where I knew it was about to happen, but so startling to just be attacked. I just kind of fro like, I'm usually fight, flight, freeze. I'm usually fight. Mm -hmm. But in this moment, I was free. I just froze. And then I'm just being hit. And I'm like, why am I being hit in the face? This is so odd. And um, I saw a guy running towards the stage. He was a big guy. He was a, he was a, he dressed like a bike. That was his kind of stage persona. His name was Mike McGregor. And I saw him running towards stage. So I thought, oh, I only have to be hit a few more times. So I kept getting, I turned my head because I didn't want to hit me in the face. But then he started punching me in the temple and the neck. And the, getting to punch the neck surprisingly hurts a lot more than you think it would. Mm. And, and the um, temple, as we famously know from the Bible, not a good place to be hit. No, I don't want to die. So that no. was bad. And then Mike pulled him off. The guy got away somehow. No one called the cops. He got away. And then the next week, people who knew him, like he had friends. A man who just randomly attacks people, had friends, were there at the bar and talking to someone, you know, and they told him, apparently, I think this guy was just very, like, coked out of his mind, that I had made a joke about call center, and he used to work in a call center, so he attacked me because he was defending, like, the honor of the call center. And the worst of this is he used to work in a call center. It wasn't I know. even his current profession. I think he, I think I may have been, I think he may have been projecting other things happening. I suspect in there was some stuff going on with that guy. Me. Yeah. So you were attacked then and then you said it's happened in another nine times. I mean, I don't remember every time. No, I'm not going to ask you to list them, but are there other, other, one were time any of them, I yeah. was rude to a man and his wife and then he tried to rush the stage another time. I was, there was two audience members. I got in a fight with one of the audience members. She stood up and chased me around the stage. Like a, like a Benny Hill, like, I was just riding a circle. Was she dressed as a French maid? I don't remember what she was dressed as, but she was, she was upset. And then she sat down and I got back on stage and continued the show. But like, she had just tried to like actually attack me and then was like, well, we'll carry on now. I'm tired of running. And then I continued arguing 
And then I got, and then her boyfriend stood up and he chased me around the stage and neither of them caught me. And then I left quickly after I got off stage. <laughs> well, now I'm thinking I might, I must be a very substandard comic. No one's ever tried to attack me. No, I think yeah. I, 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 when I don't focus my creative energies in the right way, I have a, I have a, I can just be a bit too mean with, uh, with, while trying to be funny and a bit, uh, just a bit, a bit too mean and not quite funny enough. And that Which is a was terrible way to, to go through life, let alone being how a I used to deal with the audience. Yes, it is not a good way. I, I don't think I'm like that in my life all the time. You're not like it, that in your life at all. That's what I'm. That's what I'm struck by when you're telling those stories and when I think about you on stage. I think I've only ever seen you be very kind of lovable. Like if you're subversive, it's in a kind of yeah, a very appealing way from what I've seen of you. And I've seen you quite a few times. But that is me now. This is that's is me fifteen years ago. You know, it's a different me. So what? Are the, um, so you said in those days it was about sex and anger, and that's what everything was. And you hadn't found your voice, so you were borrowing Emo Phillips' voice. So what's changed then? Those years. On? Well, those the Emo Phillips thing that was very brief actually. So that joke was the I only had two or three jokes in that style, and then no, then I was always kind of the way I'm now. I was just a more intense version of the way I'm now, because. Um, I mean, I just had underlying mental illness I wasn't really dealing with. So that was coming out on stage in a quite exciting way sometimes and then a quite destructive way other times. But when it worked, it would really work. And then when it didn't work, it would really not work. And now my, I would say me on stage is more of a reflection of how I am in life now, which I, I don't quite get those same highs that I used to get, but I also don't get those awful lows. But I still want to reach for the highs and try to amp myself up. But but there's a certain energy that untreated mental illness gives you on stage that's really hard. It's a confidence and it's really hard to um, to manufacture. And it's the and it's never flat if you're struggling like that in your head. The last no, thing you're ever going to do is no, I think it was quite I, I would imagine it was quite dynamic because if I started bombing, I would get quite angry. And sometimes I'd turn it around with this emotion and sometimes I wouldn't. But I. Yeah, and that was all happening beneath the surface of jokes that I say every time. So there was like an emotional roller coaster happening every time I was on stage beneath the surface of the same act. So the same act could have a different energy every time. And was, did, did you, because did it feel like, did the kick you got out of comedy then? Because if those are days when you're drinking and, and, you know, doing drugs sometimes to kind of black out, you're much more out of control in your own head. So then you're more out of control on stage. So the high was bigger, I guess, that you got from comedy when you're- Oh, yeah. But also that's maybe youth. Everything when you do it for the first time is exciting. And then the 20th time isn't that exciting. You know, I, I, yeah, it was bigger highs, definitely. They say that there was some research about kind of happiness and the rush you get from stuff. And it, they were using like, they weren't using heroin. I think they were using chocolate. And it was this thing that if you had, if you- if you ate chocolate every day, you would never get anything remotely akin to the kind of good feeling you could get from it if you only ate. I think it was like once a week or every 10 days, there was like literally an interval according yes, to hours and days at which if you didn't do it too much, you would always get that kind of kick out of it. I remember when I was trying to give up smoking, one of the many times I tried to give up before pregnancy was what enabled me to give up. Um, or necessitated me giving up. And I remember reading that book by Alan Carr and him saying, if you look at smokers, all they're doing every time they're smoking is trying to get the feeling they got when they had that first great cigar. Oh yeah, we're all yeah. like, yeah. I got my trying vape right here. Love. There. I, there you go. They're going to be banned soon. I mean, I feel guilty smoking them. Yeah, well, that you're going to be choking a dolphin or whatever it is you're doing, aren't you? Yeah, I'm smoking? killing a lot of turtles. Yeah, it's really horrible. It's really undefendable. Amphibian slaughterer. Yeah, but I do. It's that thing of trying to get the um all that kind of positive psychology movement like Martin Seligman and all those people who write about the fact that you kind of always will hit your default state. So no amount of amazing things will make you feel amazing for very long but before you hit the level at which you normally live life. And similarly, somebody who's like naturally pretty up and resilient can be told they've got terminal cancer and they will still pretty much default to their resilient, happy state until they die, obviously, then, then I think they lose that. Yeah, like... 
I always, I, I, the thing is now I'm quite level. I'm not, the, it's hard, It's so hard. They, like the me I'm talking about, when I talk about these things is like 10 years ago. So it's a different me or maybe, well, five years ago in some cases, but. It's not long ago though, five years, 10 years. No, but it feels like a long time. Like, but, but I, oh shit. I don't know what I was going to say. My mind went blank. We were talking about that the highs and whether you still have the high and whether you can sort of what your kind of default setting is, um, whether you can still get that kind of kick now that things are a bit more stable in your head. Would you describe them as stable in your head or would you not go that far? I would say it's stable mostly. Oh, I when I was when I was 20, I always had this thought where I was like, I wish I could. I feel like I lived life feeling like I was in a war. Like everything felt so hard and my emotions were so intense. And I thought there's probably some happy man in Syria. And I, if we could just literally trade physical circumstances, he would, I would probably feel the same and he could have a happy life. Yeah. <laughs> like, but you didn't actually go to Syria and try and offer No, I didn't. Well, well there's, no, there's not a, a capacity to trade lives with someone, really, no, in that there's way. there's not. There's not. But that is interesting, isn't it, how the um, how that, yeah, that incapacity to to sort of see what we have. But is it happy? Do you think it's happiness anyone's after anyway? Because that, I think it's a bit of a fool's errand looking for happiness. Oh, when people have got happiness, yeah. it's so boring. It's, it's like, like, what, what, what do you do? Yeah, and what does that, yeah, it kind of it's almost sounds a, a bit flat to me. I happiness. think it's a vague, I think it's very vague and it's very, it's one feeling that lasts for tens, like not even for a second. Smug, and the, and the you'd be very changes. smug if you were happy all the time. No one would be drawn to you because of your smug serenity. Yes, it would be very boring. And I think... It's not really what people want, I think. It's not what we're going to get anyway with our screens no. and living in London and being comedians. We're and not waiting for happiness. Yeah, people can say they want happiness, but if you grow up for like 18 years around people who are miserable, you're going you're gonna to spend the rest of your life wanting misery to feel at home and having to fight against that. And therein lies the spirit of this whole podcast summed up right there. Namaste, motherfucker. Um, yeah. Well, no, sometimes it's more upbeat. But <laughs> the um, but you, in terms of your... I can be upbeat. I just need the right question. I can be upbeat. I'm very upbeat. I, I, I can... Well, like, you are very upbeat. You're always a very cheering person to have. I'm always really pleased if we're on a bill. I always want to get there in time to hang out with you because you always cheer my soul. You're a very cheering guy, which is why it's... But I've only known you since you've got to grips with whatever so what was that I mean I know a bit about it but for the purposes of anyone listening who doesn't what was it that you discovered about your the inner workings of your your crazy brain my what were my struggles well I I well I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder which is a very murky label that I don't really think is it doesn't if, if to anyone that doesn't know what it is it doesn't um it doesn't tell them anything so another another emotional regulation disorder, I think it is, or something like that is another la label they have for it. Because I thought you were bipolar, but you're not. You've got borderline personality disorder. I know. I, I, uh, I mean, I'm sure I could get the label. I have enough of the symptoms. I could get rapid cycling bipolar and get the meds if I wanted. Easy but you peasy. Don't, you don't want the meds. I've, well, I've had periods where I wanted the meds, the bipolar medication, and it, it could, it could, it could help in some way that there could be some benefits to that maybe but um eh, i haven't done that i think um was it you who was talking about being it may not have been you i had a conversation with someone backstage about running out of their um medication in edinburgh and putting out the word of needing to get some i've done that yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody's, got everybody's got the same shit so right now I've, i borrowed some adhd medication from a friend we we're talking about that earlier and i started to try that because the thing is you can't that's that, and that to anyone listening that sounds crazy especially someone like wait so you're you're a recovering drug addict and you're not I'm, i don't even think of myself that way now but you're a you're a guy who doesn't do drugs but you're just taking so to get adhd medication i would have to pay, go private because the nhs would take years and i would have to get a private diagnosis pay a thousand pounds to know to try the meds maybe not get to try the meds and then um maybe not like them so i borrowed some of those meds from a friend lately and they're fucking great. So now is your friend having to order them in double dose and feign no, my, extreme my, symptoms? My friend has their ways, you know. Okay. So, um, but you've got but the good. I, you've got all the good dealers still, haven't I you? I got a good connection. Yeah. So, yeah. but I, I, the thing is, these. I, so I started taking those, 
and it's just kind of microdose and a little speed. That's what it is. It's a little, a little bit is of that methamphetamine. What it feels like? Well, I, that's not this what it feels like, but that's what the chemical compound is. It is the same, is it? I, 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 listen, I can't scientifically say exactly what it is, but it is a, it's an amphetamine, yes. Because the, um, I mean, it's, well, first of all, you're preaching to the choir about trading uh, prescription drugs in car parks because that's what menopausal women have been doing for years because we can never get the right stuff because it's so poorly produced and no one prioritizes its production line so women are routinely not being able to get what they need so yeah. there's whatsapp groups of women trading estrogen patches been going on for years when that was all that in the papers recently they were like oh and women are having to you know illicitly procure their kind of estrogen it's like so we've been doing this for years we were early adopters of the taking your friends medication, Good. bobby so don't be you know but I, it, it's that. so i i feel like i've really come full circle because it's like i thought I, I've tried every other drug. I've tried a mood stabilizer, which so that's like an antipsychotic. I've tried antidepressants for years. I've done every form of therapy imaginable. And then I took this pill and I'm like, oh. Oh, okay. Well, now I can get some things done. And I like myself because I can focus. So can you get that drug now legally? Well, I would have to go get a diagnosis now from a doctor, which I will do in the next couple weeks. And then I will be someone with ADHD, but do not make this the clip because I will- <laughs> It's not going to make it my, the clip because no one will watch it. Because everyone will be like, yeah, we've heard all that of my Exactly, as all of my peers now constantly talk about their ADHD in the comedy world, I could, I couldn't. We'll keep it, it your dirty just, secret, don't you worry. It will be my dirty, it will be my dirty Good. secret. I'm proud but of I, you yes. keeping it hidden. Namaste, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers. My son was diagnosed with ADD about 15 years ago. So I feel he was a, he was a kind of early adopter. He was like the first person who got a Blackberry when, uh, you know, everyone else yes. still had chunky grapes. I was, I was told as a boy, I had that many teachers and it was unusual much well more unusual in those days but i think they used to think adhd was punching people and bouncing off walls and physical a lot of it was physical i don't think they were seeing it as much as something that was kind of neurological wiring that might affect everything about you and how you well, live life. well again they put the word hyperactivity in the name yeah, yeah that's a, uh, which that's would make anyone think that it's not hyperactive that they don't have that Yes. No, that is true. I was really surprised when I found out. <laughs> like it's so yeah, it's, stupid. <laughs> it is. And you end up thinking, I, I was totally thrown when my son was diagnosed with it because I, I didn't think that's what it was. And that now I know more about what it is. I'm like, yeah, it makes perfect sense. But I didn't see it coming. I saw the autism coming, but I didn't see the ADHD coming as a diagnosis. It's, it's so interesting we talk about mental health. And I, I say this not to say I don't want to talk about it, but like, I'm so bored of the conversation. I think I think there's many people where it's helpful for them to publicly hear. But for me, I've been in this conversation for 15 years trying to figure out what's going on with me, how to be, how to just exist in life and live a good life. I've been lucky enough to have enough money to get private therapy. So I'm I'm not dead. Like that's been good. That was good. Not being dead is really good. I like all that my being, guests not to be dead. I'm all about not being dead. Just the baseline. And, and, uh, and I've spent so many years thinking and talking about it um that i don't really like you mean you in terms of it defining you or that you yeah, feel defining like me okay. defining me and yeah. then people and i understand the urge to be like this defines me this is why i am the way i am and people really like there's such a, a modern trend right now for people to cling to a label and make it every part of themselves and it's like maybe not well it's just maybe. a clue it's, it's like the addict thing i'm not saying you were an addict but I, well I, well I am an, i'm sure i could get that i am an addict sure well any of us who have not, those whatever yeah i guess we we know if we have those kind of traits and any of those things it is all about your like a diagnosis is is largely irrelevant apart from it enables us to have some relationship to who we actually are and then what we might want to do with it so it's not really yeah. at all about the label Apart and from that might release us from, yeah, a bit of self-knowledge might release us from having to put ourselves through the mill before we can do something we like doing. That's really yeah. what it is, isn't it? It's kind of, it's meant, it should be freeing, not restricting, really. Yes. Yes. And I do feel like there's a trend where some people definitely hide behind their label to excuse kind of how they are. And it's like, well, you still have to try. You still have to like try to be, you know, 
all right to people. Well, it's also an easy thing. I think people who it's it, people who write books from the basis of I was diagnosed as this and it changed everything. And it's kind of like, but also it doesn't make us experts on the thing we've been diagnosed with. We're not suddenly no. someone who studied our condition for 20 years. We're a person who would told we had it. And there's a massive gap between the two. Yes. You having said you don't want to talk about borderline personality disorder. So yes. what I do know... I do know a little bit about it. I don't have it, but I do know a little bit about it for various reasons. But how 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 was it a, was it a clue to you then when you got told that's what it what your label was, even though you've said you could have any number of labels? Did it yeah, was yeah. it helpful was it helpful to know that or that it was it was not helpful to know it. It was helpful like I was told I had it when I was maybe twenty three, but then a bunch of therapists after that don't like that label. So they told me I didn't have it because they saw it as like untreatable. So they were they were talk therapists. So they just wanted to talk and thought that would help. It didn't. We so talked talk a lot. talking therapy has not been a thing that's doesn't do anything for a person with borderline personality disorder. Generally, generally, what talk therapy does, in my understanding, is reaffirm the narrative in their mind. It can just make them worse. It's a bit like because, people with PTSD. If you come out of a big trauma or something horrific that's happened, they now have found that talking therapy anchors it and embeds it rather than releasing it. Although many years later, talking therapy can help. But at the time, that's why they do all this tapping and physical stuff, because you need to sort of work through something really primal well, and not yeah, anchor and, it with talk. And and borderline is another, you know, another way to describe borderline would probably be like childhood post-traumatic stress disorder, mm -hmm. which is just. Is it linked to that thing? Because I know you've talked about having a traumatic childhood. Is it linked? Is it linked to trauma of childhoods rather than it being uh, a sort of. I've never met anyone. I don't I've never met anyone who said I have BPD that didn't have a pretty terrible childhood. And yeah, so I would say, yeah, yeah, there's definitely genetic factors because some people can have the same experiences and not end up with the inability to regulate their emotions and like a lack of sense of self and like self-harming urges and you know like that can all that can still i'm probably missing symptoms i haven't thought about in a while but that can still be there so there's probably a genetic element it's it's off I, from what i know it's often also about your parents being very different different so, from you no different from each other oh okay. so maybe one I don't I can't remember the specifics, but it's like one one angry parent, one quiet parent. So you so kind of have to split. So you're trying to please both parents, but and you kind of have to split yourself to do that. I don't know if it's you're trying to please both parents, but then you're you know, you are a, an amalgamation of your parents. So then you're it, it's hard to integrate those two selves when they're quite different. Yeah, it's really, I, that, yeah. that's that's the theory that I read, but I don't know. I think with all of these things, though, it's like a combination, isn't it? If you want to, you want a sort of, I know when my son got his diagnosis, he, he said it was like having a roadmap to himself. He was like, I kind of get it a bit more and I get, sure. and I don't feel as guilty that I can't do some of the things the same as the people my age are doing. So for well, him, your, your son has autism, right? Autism and ADHD. But the thing about autism is it's, they don't have to change. They're, it's well, like they, the most celebrated. They They're not known. It's for the most celebrated say. label. <laughs> it's it's a cool one, right? Every other label, we have to do something with it. The autistics <laughs> are just like, this is who I am, and they have this amazing pride. I'm so envious. I was hoping for that one. I had these two people. I had this autistic father and son um, who were very sweet. Come to my. They came to a lot of my shows in um, the Leicester area because that's where they live, and. Um, Crazily, the father, I was talking to him once and he was telling me about how he dropped out of Oxford because he was bored and he moved to Greece and became a musician. And I was like, you were bored at Oxford. And I don't like hold education in that high of a regard, but I'm like, that's, it's, I'm sure it's quite hard. And then uh, he was like, yeah, I was just bored. I was doing math. And I'm like, you're bored of doing math at Oxford. Okay. And then I was like, and you went to Greece to play music. Do you speak Greek? He's like, yeah. And I was like, how many languages do you speak? He was like, I don't know, like nine. I was like, wait, you speak nine languages. And then I knew his son was autistic and I was like, are you a savant? And he was like, yes. And he was an autistic savant. So he, he just has a, a, I've never met a, I, I'm obsessed with savants because I wish I was one. He, he just has a completely photographic memory and can read a book and know everything that's in the book. And that was, it was amazing to, I, 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 I hold savants in high regard because I wish we all had their minds, but, um, I've never so, met a savant though. That must have been that. It was gotta, amazing. Yeah. I, I've met him multiple times, and he he's now 
but he's a high school teacher, you know, and which is okay. That's great. It's a great use of, I think, a catalog of knowledge to pass it on to people. Um, that but sounds not, more boring than studying maths at Oxford to me. Well, to you, to us, yes. To me, yes, definitely to me. But I guess it's just what he likes. And I also not just because you have the ability to retain a pile of information does not necessarily mean you have the ability to to apply that and make a lot of money starting your own businesses you know what i mean like it doesn't necessarily go together and helping people is a pretty good thing to do like, but um but anyway so those two came to my shows and after a few times coming they were like we love coming to you we don't see many autistic comedians and i was like i'm i'm not autistic and they were like okay and then they left <laughs> So did you leave it at that? Because who was it? I was into oh Robin Ince. I had Robin Ince on the podcast a few weeks ago, and it was it was a conversation with an audience member about I think it might I think it was ADHD. He was diagnosed with late in life, but whoever it was in the audience were like, you do know that you should be being tested for this. And then he went off, and it was all kind of life changing. I should remember this conversation with more accuracy, given it was about three weeks ago. But that's my ADHD brain. Um, sure. But did you did you when they said that did you think oh. Hold on. I did some Googling and I don't Always the think... best way to diagnose or not. Well, I mean, it is, though. It is how. The best I, knew, I know I'm not ADHD because I spent four minutes on my iPad in bed the other night. So yeah. I know I'm not. So I did some Googling. I don't think so. But who knows? I mean, you wish you were because, as you've said, it's the real kind of red carpet of the Well, event. I just I envy the pride that they have, the lot that the public speaking autistics have about themselves. Well, and the knowledge that, that anyone who is autistic and has that special knowledge thing, which so many of, you know, the special interest thing that develops into this encyclopedic knowledge of whatever the thing is, that is kind of cool, isn't it? It's sort of- Well, and that, well that is some people with autism, yeah. some people with autism work at McDonald's, you know. But, but they might still have a special interest that is fascinating. Yes. But it is, but, um, but, yeah, it, it's amazing how many of my son's friends who work with animals, they, uh, many of them are autistic. There seems to be a thing about working with animals that yeah. draws people who are neurodivergent mm. makes sense yeah easier of, to decode than people yeah a lot of i i i it's uh, i i enjoy when they try to put these labels on uh historic like history you know and it's like i yes. guess the I, great you, autist you the winston churchill leading us through war really i don't think it's so a, it probably has been more written a, about yeah more, more a psychopath i think mm. than a but that, that, that's, and a narcissist. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, most people who lead countries are. That's how you. And businesses, so, indeed. Yes, yes. It is a it is a attractive quality in a the chief of a tribe. Just some intrinsic narcissism. I had a really good um. I had a really good chat with a guy called. He's called Doctor Professor or Doctor Kevin Dutton, and he's written a book called The Good Psychopath, and he writes about and he he uses Andy McNabb as his kind of case study. Oh, and I've read all about this. Yes, so good, so interesting. I'd recommend it for your big brain. Yes, uh, there was a question. I forgot what the question is again. About autism? Were you tempted when those guys came? Oh, to the show I was and said tempted. That? Yes, yeah. because there's no, there's no. I mean, uh, the borderline label is just. There's no. It's a bad. La it's a no fun label. Um, we're it's hard not work. at all showbiz, is it? That one. It's no, like, we're hard work. Is for uh, Pete Davidson. Mm -hmm. Pete Davidson is doing the most probably public the poster kind of boy service yeah. to the label. Yeah. Um, uh, Princess Diana. Look how well that worked out. Well, you know, she had some fun. Mm -hmm. She did. She uh, lived a life. She did live a life. But I, yeah, so I, um, I don't know. I never know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, but you don't when need I to, we're not trying to solve the puzzle, are we? It's not like no, with mental just, health. You're, we're not trying, you're just trying to find whatever it is that'll help you do the stuff you want to do. I don't think any of us are going well. Yes. That, I think if, it's, oh, help. Yeah. How did I get help? That's a good question. If that's, um, so I probably like, so I did years of talk therapy, years of things, and I just wasn't getting happier. On paper, my life was great. I was at the time getting married. I was filming my own TV show. I, um, and I just, was not my I was getting my emotions were getting more and more like up down up down up down like just very hard to be around very hard to be me um so eventually uh I 
when uh, I I got a I just a, a psychiatrist was like, yeah, this is what's wrong with you, and I'm like, oh, someone did tell me that once, and then they were like, okay, yeah, you need to get uh, DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy, which is a therapy invented by a woman with borderline who was also a, I think a psychologist, Martha Linehan, and she, uh, it's it's the, now there's CBT, which is they give you a few kind of thinking tools. Dialectical behavioral therapy should not be confused with that. There is CBT integrating into it, but it's also a mix. It's a mixture of mindfulness, interpersonal relationships, distress tolerance, and kind of and um, something else that I forget. But the the whole point of it is it gives you physical skills. Like there's a thick book with hundreds of skills, and it's like if you feel this way and you want to feel this way, do this. If you feel this way and you want to do feel this way, do this. It's a very practical therapy. There's a group element that's not like group therapy in terms of emotional sharing. It's group therapy in terms of like a class where every week you learn a new skill, um, and then you do one-on-one -on -one therapy if you can afford it, or there it is available through the NHS. So you just have to present very or crazy. So, so you, um, the one-on-one -on -one therapy to kind of reaffirm the skills you are learning and using and maybe focus more on, uh, your life as opposed to the skill. And I did that and that cracked it. Like that was just like, Oh, this is what I needed. That's I I've been... never heard of this and all the episodes I've done of this, where we talk a little about such things, I've never heard of it. Is it quite, so is it, is it something that, I mean, obviously lots of people do know about it. It's not a brand new thing, but no, it's not it's... something you hear talked about very much. No, because it's quite, um, it's expensive, right? Like offering it's that because CBT is cheap. That's why they do it. CBT's Cause cheap. They, they give you six sessions on the NHS it's, and you're done. So it's cheap. It's also, I would say not to, it's cheap for a reason, <laughs> you know, um, I, so yeah, but yeah, it, it I mean, it exists and there, there, there's like empirical evidence for kind of every skill and there's studies for every skill where they've used them and kind of show like what can happen. Is it connected it can... to trauma? Is it connected to like the tapping and the stuff people do for trauma or is it nothing to do with that? Because I know there's a lot of physical unlocking of different disorders now as opposed to talking about them. There's, that's more of a recognized Well, link. one one example I can think of is if you were, if you, um, so if I get very dysregulated where I'm very angry or very sad or very, it's a very physical experience where my whole body is kind of buzzing and I'm very intense and I don't know what to do. And I have all this energy and I'm full of energy. And it's because my amygdala is just firing off because I have an overactive amygdala that just thinks I'm in danger all the time. So, so your fight just, or flight mechanism is hypervigilant. It's, well, it's very broken because of my childhood. So it just goes bop, 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 bop at the smallest kind of problem. And what, so if, if that's happened and I'm in that state, uh, and none of this is rocket science. It's like, if you're in that state, exercise intensely, do really deep breathing. <gasps> so like you literally reset your endocrine system. Yes, yes, yes. You're calming down the reptile part of your brain, whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't, yes, I assume that. And that, so that's, that's when you're very distressed. And then there's different skills for all the other parts of life. And that did it for me. I did that for a couple years, took a break, went back to it to kind of reaffirm stuff. And I found that it stuck. It just, it just stuck. I'm still, I'll still have bad moments. But it used to be if I got upset, I would be upset for days and I would be dysregulated for days and unable to kind of control my emotions for days, whereas now it's minutes or seconds. That's amazing. That is amazing. And did you worry, did you think when you had children, or I know you've got a child, not children, did you think knowing what impact your parenting had on you and you spending your adult life unpicking it and working your shit out to whatever degree any of us ever managed to did you feel that like when you were when you was with your baby and thinking oh this is going to be a kid and I'm going to have an Im I'm going to imprint on my kid did that stuff go through your mind or oh yeah I think I mean I'm, I'm happy I have a child I love having a child but like on paper I would have preferred to... yes yes I'm worried yeah for sure I'm concerned I think it's good, um, the humility of the concerned parent. I think that's a good place to start. 
to start or start? Yeah, to start. I think it's good for us to be thinking about the fact we might oh, imprint sure. our kids and we might have a negative impact. I, um, but I, I'll just try to watch it and I'll try to watch my bad habits and realize and do what I can do. But, but yeah, I definitely was concerned. But um, yeah, yeah, I don't, I, 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 uh, but she seems great so far, so good. She certainly looks like a picture perfect, the sort of baby you have in sort of books about cute babies. She's got that look. She looks She's slightly great. like a little sort of, not Victorian, like a sort of a proper baby from a sort of innocent, lovely, rosy yeah, yeah, cheek yeah. time. She has that look. You've done well. She's, You've produced a very cute you. looking baby. Um, I'm going to ask you in a minute the three questions I ask everyone, but I just have to ask you about, um, I should say, I mean, anyone listening knows your comedy. That's why they're listening. And some people will discover you because of listening to this. But you are one of my absolute favorite comics not just to hang out with backstage, but I do love watching you because it never is. I never, ever go, yeah, I've heard him do that shit and it's the same old. I mean, I've heard some of your routines more than once, but you always do something different, which is a really fucking hard thing to do as a comic. Um, you bring something different every time and fair bloody play to you for that. But you've also done tour support for, I didn't realize till I was doing a bit of research. And by the way, your website is the least helpful research tool I've ever seen for anybody researching a podcast. Because there's nothing on it. Yes. It's yes, very, there's not. Very skinny. Um, but you have supported Jerry Sadovitz, Doug Stanhope, Bill Burr. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that, that I did do that. And that was, um, yeah, Jerry was a weird one. I did that for a month um, right when I moved here. There's a man who must have been attacked a few times on stage. I would imagine so. Mm-hmm. Jerry, Jerry is a very talented, one of the most talented people I've ever met. Um, he would just show me backstage. He would just show me close up. Is it called close up magic where they do like stuff with mm-hmm. coins? And it was incredible. Apparently he's one of the best close up magicians in the world. Is he? Uh, yeah. In the, like, yeah, it's incredible. And he was very talented. Yeah. And just watching, I'd never heard of Jerry before I moved here and he was very great. And I was very grateful to get that opportunity because I moved here in like july of 2011 and then in november of 2011 i was opening for jerry in like all these beautiful theaters how across did that the come country. about that's a pretty soft landing in a new country a, a lot of luck actually i i had an agent at the time who and someone had dropped out from doing tour support for jerry so you're i a got a great fit as well you're a great fit for support for jerry yeah and many I got would to, be and Jerry's not really in the comedy community so much, so he wouldn't know. So the promoter sorted it with my agent and got me. I did two days, and we just got along enough. And then so I did uh, like a month. So after Jerry Sadovitz, did Doug Stanhope and Bill Burr come after you supported Jerry? No, I knew Doug in – I met Doug randomly through a promote, promoter in Canada. I just went to watch, and the guy kept trying to get me on the show – and eventually Doug felt sorry for me. He thought he'd be terrible. And then with his expectations being so low, I was all right. So he liked me. And then I would just open for him often when he was in Toronto or Montreal. And then I moved here and he was so kind. This is actually one of the kindest things anyone's ever done for me. He was doing a month at Leicester Square Theater. And at the time, like Doug was the comic that all comics kind of a lot of comics really loved and and he was he was like at the top of his game and he let me open for him at Leicester Square Theatre at the beginning and the end of the month right when I moved here and because of that people just everyone knew who I was really quickly and that was such that was such a kind thing to do and yeah and then I, I reckon you were doing before. the job all right. I don't think he'd have just done it out of kindness. I dare say. No, but also he could have got anyone. Yeah. La- la- I, then I'm, yeah, and I've done it a few more times since, but that was that was a very pivotal moment, I guess, in, in me moving here was that opportunity. Was it? So that it was, was Well, it was yeah. just a little springboard, you know, you need. It was a big little springboard. Yeah, you need, a, you need some luck to. Um, and a little bit of talent doesn't go amiss. Let's not underestimate talent the talent. Helps. Talent does help. And yeah, but talent and you don't have control over. Talent That's you true. have no control over. No, that is true. It is true. And some people without talent do quite well, but let's not get into them. Um, and Bill Burr, one of my absolute, that's, that's. I mean, I just love. Do you love I Bill could, Burr? I do love Bill Burr. Uh, yeah. That was, I just, 
Bill Burr, that was just, I, I knew the promoter and Bill didn't know me, but he was a pro. I opened for him, I think four times. In big venues. Oh yeah. The Apollo. I, the I've big... opened for, and then since then, yeah, it's so weird. I'd love, I'd love to do my own show at the Apollo, but you know what? If my career ended today, I have opened for St Doug at the Apollo twice, Doug Stano, Bill at the Apollo twice, and Bill Maher, weirdly, once. Oh, really? It was so odd. He's an so, odd guy anyway. Like, I sort of love his podcast, but, I, well, it's not just his show, and I sort of don't, depending where I'm at in terms of political views. But, I, yeah. I, it was, there was a really weird moment where I walked into the green room after opening for Bill Maher, and I'd never met Bill Maher, and I did watch his show a lot when I was a kid, and I would say our kind of political ideologies have probably separated a bit since I've passed the age of 16. Yes. But he, um, but he was there and he's holding court and there's like 40 people just kind of listening to him talk. And then I look over and in the, uh, in the corner, Roseanne Barr is there. And I mean, Roseanne's had her, problems since but i at the time i you know i loved roseanne was one of the best comedians and that show as well we just loved an the under show. very underrated stand-up a very underrated stand-up for how good she was and so that was uh, um so i was just watching bill maher and roseanne interact and um roseanne bill was like you live in hawaii don't you and uh the roseanne was like yeah 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 and she was like you should come visit sometime and then uh Bill Maher was just talked about how every New Year's Eve he goes for dinner with Sean Penn, Eddie Vedder, and someone else. And I remember just sitting and thinking, I don't think Sean Penn and Eddie Vedder are talking about you right now. <laughs> but he was kind. He said, good job. We didn't have much to say to each other, and I left. But it was just funny to watch Bill Maher, Big Dog, Roseanne in front of 30 strangers. I think that's a way, that's a moment that can help you die happy, I reckon. You can yeah, put that it was one all in the right. Vault. It was interesting. Yeah, that's a life well lived. Hopefully you won't die tomorrow. You'll have more good moments. What would you pick then, Bobby, as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment? Life-changing moment. I was thinking about this today. And um, so I, you know, my whole life right now, because the, at the beginning we talk about mental, the, the, the vomit of mental illness just that we talk about that There's, but uh, the, the reality of my life now is i'm quite a nice life i have a i have a child that i love i have a nice career at i've made this my home after living here for 12 years and i moved from canada and i and I, lots of my best friends are still in canada my family's there and um but i knew i remember you know a career is a big part of happiness like that is like on you know if you're not happy in your job is quite hard to be happy in the rest of your life and i remember i was in canada and uh, all the comics who were like me but older just didn't seem very happy or satisfied i'm not even talking about successful just satisfied with what they were doing with with their time they just seemed unsatisfied and i did a western tour of canada which is um because canada's so spread out you have to just travel so i was in the west of canada which i mean is as far from where I was living as we are right now from Moscow, you know, like it's, it's a, it's a big, and I was there for a month and I was doing shows and I was just doing clubs and then just sitting around in the week, just not knowing anyone and bored. And just, I had this realization where I was like, this is going to be the rest of my life. If I don't leave Canada, I just knew myself well enough to know, like, I, this isn't, okay, this isn't quite what I want. Um, so I called my landlord and I gave up my place. And at the time I was living in the basement of a mansion. So I knew this eccentric millionaire who had a, a, her problems, definitely, but she was kind enough to let me live in the basement of a mansion she was renting. 
Um, so I lived in a mansion, had my own bathroom, had my own sauna. My I was driving a car my dad had. So I was driving a brand new car and living in a mansion making $10,000 a year. It was a, a silly life. Um, and I gave up that mansion and I just couch surfed and I decided I was going to move to England. I'm like, I'm going to move to England. So that, that was the moment. The moment was just sitting in like Edmonton, a hotel room in Edmonton. I don't even remember what happened. Just hating, just being in Alberta, the province of Alberta and wanting to fucking never go back. And I decided I was going to move to England, an island with 70 million people who all speak English and love comedy a lot more than anyone else in the world. So I gave up where I lived. I was now, I went from living in a mansion to being homeless. I just couch surfed for months, saved money, saved money, saved money, got a job, saved money, saved money, saved money, saved up enough to move here, got a visa. And then right before I moved here, I, um, I won this comedy competition where I got $10,000 and that, that actually might be it because winning that competition, I just, what it gave me was a story and it's very hard. What I, I, I think what some to stand out when, if you're a comedian, everyone's a comedian. We're all pretty good at it. Some people are exceptional and they might get noticed. They might not. Usually they do. Um, and some people are okay and they might grind to the top. Um, I don't know where I fit into that, but I won this competition and I had $10,000. And what it gave me was when I moved here, I had a story and I would just tell people a little white lie. I would say, I just won $10,000 in a comedy competition and on a whim decided to move here. Will you give me a spot on your show? And I got to say, that story worked. Everybody, like it just makes people remember you. And it's so hard in a crowded marketplace of thousands of people to be remembered. And that, and then, and that kind of solidified things for me. And then just gave me a career here and it settled down and I had a family and yeah, so I would say that is the moment that kind of um, did it. You also won the amount of money in one go that you were earning in a year. So yes, a good I doubled my I doubled There's a good synchronicity there. That's a good, yes. um, yeah. Well, that's as good a namaste motherfucking moment as you're going to get, Bobby. Thank you. You've you've served the you've served the brand well. I'm glad. That. Yeah, you've been of service. Thank and you. what's your what's your favorite joke? Um, I don't know any jokes i don't remember jokes apart from the one from when you were starting out about being i remember that my own face. that was that joke yeah and i don't remember i don't know any jokes i wish i had a joke i was when i read it, i thought well, like a google one but i'm like well then that's inauthentic yeah that's an inauthentic, inauthentic thing to do yeah be shit before you're inauthentic please yes yeah. I don't, I just never remember jokes. I don't, people tell them to me, I never find them funny. I don't find like a street joke funny. The, 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 I find them sometimes quite clever, but I'm never laughing. Um, because usually the person telling you, a person who usually, a person telling a joke is an unfunny person who wants to make people laugh. And it's so awkward seeing it coming, isn't it? When someone starts the joke and you're the recipient of the joke and you're like, oh, am I going to have to respond to the joke in a minute? That makes me so tense. Telling a comedian a, a joke, it's like, if I'm a musician, I wouldn't be like, do you want me to play, like, play you a little song? Like my version of music? I know you have your <laughs> version of music that's very successful and you make a lot of money doing, but do you want to hear what my version of music is? And it's like, no, no, I don't. <laughs> I know what you mean about the, well, we have this question in, spoiler alert, okay. because of how people answer it as much as what the joke is. We love how people answer the question okay. too. No, I get it. That's fine. I'm happy to, we're, you know. We're very meta fine. on the podcast. Yes. Yeah. Did you have anything when you were, when you were supporting people like Doug and Jerry, were you looking at things, were there things they did where you were like, oh, right. When I grow up, I want to be able to do that kind of stuff on stage. Oh, definitely. In terms of, uh like doug has incredible like 10 minute 15 minute stories 
that on the surface, it just seems like a great story. But if you break it down, there's like a joke every like 15, like 10 seconds. And then it'll all connect together. And I was like, yeah, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to craft an incredible piece of comedy that's like really real, but also skilled and also a great story. I don't know, like, so definitely, yeah. And Bill Burr. It's very gentle. It looks very effortless the way Doug does it, doesn't it? You wouldn't know, even as a comic, you could be taken in by thinking he's just telling a story. No, but he he writes, it's it's all, you know, curated. He's a magician, yeah. Yeah. I like your, um, I love your material about the speed limits on country roads in this country. That makes me laugh. Um, Thank you very much. Very good premise and delivered very beautifully. So thank you. And I thought of, I thought, I thought of a clean joke. And now one of the punchlines is bitch cuck. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure (laughs) if it's the clean joke. I hoped it would be. Joke may be clean, the punchline less so. Yes, yes. The premise is clean. And if you could give some life advice to anybody listening, one bit of life advice, what would it be? Um, just maybe, uh, try taking one piece of advice. I don't think anyone needs any more advice. I think people hear advice and go, yeah, yeah. And then just keep going. So how about this? If you keep making the same mistake over and over again, which we all do, and someone says to you, and even if they're a bit rude about it, like, why are you telling me this? They're telling you this probably because someone has to. Just try taking a piece of advice would be my advice. Namaste, that was Bobby Mayer. We've put links to Bobby's website in the show notes. And if you get a chance, do go and see him live. Honestly, honestly, he is one of the best there is. I love to be in venues with him on and off stage. He's a sweetheart. So that is it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please do remember to rate, review and also hit subscribe. And we will be back in your feed next Thursday, as always, when I will be talking to Bryony Gordon. I always say that 90% of the writing of a book happens before you've ever actually written a word. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen for Pod People Productions with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste motherfuckers. Pod people. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.